0: Let's open our Bibles this morning to Romans, Romans chapter 3. We'll start chapter 3 first, and then we're going to go to chapter 5. Romans chapter 3. It is Reformation Sunday. There is some expectation that we would be in perhaps Romans. Now, in the past few years on this Sunday, I have... uh, Uh, preached a sermon from one of the great reformers, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, uh, Eugene McCartney, and passed. But this year I was encouraged to do my own sermon. Someone thought my theological skills had had matured enough that uh, I could handle a Reformation Sunday. But that does not mean that I'm not going to rely upon the great reformers, obviously, for this important Sunday. I mean, every Sunday is important, but there is significance on this Sunday. And so this year, uh, I'm going to rely upon a uh, theological mind greater than my own, certainly. And uh, I'll be quoting off and on from one of my favorite modern-day theologians. In modern day, in my lifetime, he has since passed on to glory. And he's probably, I guess in my mind, I'm somewhat biased, but I'll say he's probably one of the greatest reformed minds of the 20th century. And his name would be Dr. John Gerstner. Uh, Dr. Gerstner was raised in Pennsylvania. He earned his Ph.D. from uh, Harvard uh, and pastored several churches in in Pennsylvania area until he was called to uh, teach church history at Pittsburgh Xenia Theological Seminary. For 30 years he was there. That was the forerunner of the seminary that I graduated from in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. And while he was a professor there, he would often come to this church in this little town which I grew up in, in Houston, Pennsylvania. And, and Dr. Gerster would be the visiting pastor. We must have had somebody who had an in with him because he came on a fairly regular basis whenever the pulpit was empty. And he would preach. And, and as a little boy, I sat there in the pew, and I was frightened every time that, that he would preach. Um, He was commanding, he was incredibly brilliant, and he was ruthlessly biblical, ruthlessly biblical. And he had a habit, and and he had, you know, we have here, you know, a pew Bible, this is the one that, that I use. He had on a ring binder, you know, a little ringed notebook, the New Testament. And it was in Greek, and I think he hand copied it himself, and he would often preach like this he 'd lean up on one elbow with the Greek here in this hand, and his finger wouldn't wouldn 't open up his little finger, and his other hand would finger would be crooked and he'd preached like this i 'm going to tell you about the love of God, and you 're never going to be the same after that okay? and, and uh, th- this is the way it was, okay, and you can imagine a, a little boy growing up in that and 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 you know I was just like, oh, yo know, Gersler, you know this this name." Rung out, but it wasn't until years later, when I was in seminary, that I was at a conference uh, called Soli Dea Gloria, for God alone be the glory, and it was a Puritan conference, and it was dealing with the sovereignty of God. And Dr. Gersner got up, and he was uh, uh, at least eighty at that time, perhaps older, and he taught for fifty minutes nonstop on the on the problem of evil and the sovereignty of God, and it changed my theological world. Uh, Now, you think if you had one of those moments where the heavens opened and you heard the angels sing and suddenly things became clear, that was it. That was that moment when it happened for me. So before we go any further on this Sunday, this Reformation Sunday, at which we we will be looking at justification. Now, uh, I was told in seminary every pastor has one sermon. Okay? Dr. Gerstner's one sermon was justification. Okay? Now, he wrote volumes on the stuff, he wrote volumes on Jonathan Edwards, but when it came down to it, he wanted people to know Christ. He wanted them to understand who Jesus was, that he had died for them, that you could be just, justified by God, and you could be taken into his presence. We who were enemies of God could be made right by God, declared right, and declared righteous by him, and go right into his presence. So... Justification, let me make sure that we understand what justification is before we go any further. Justification is the act of making someone right with God, and only God can do that. Justification takes place when God declares that those who put their faith in Christ, they are now righteous. Second Corinthians 5, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus became our substitute on the cross so that we could be made just or right with God. We were guilty, but we were declared righteous by God through the work of Jesus Christ. We cannot justify ourselves by any work that we do. That's why I start in Romans chapter three. Um, let's I'll start reading in verse twenty one here, and we'll go through twenty four. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We pretty much know that verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and, and who does that include? Who does that verse include? Everybody, okay, there's nobody here in this room, there's nobody in the world who does not fall short, who is not tainted by sin, who has not been corrupt, and therefore cannot go into the presence of God, cannot get there by themselves. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So it is God's grace delivered to us through Christ Jesus that changes our status before the Lord. That we can go right to him. Now you think, oh, that sounds pretty cool, Rand. But, uh, you know, I didn't think I was too bad to start with. So why am I getting all worked up that I need to be made righteous before the Lord? Well, Well, we'll see that in just a few moments as to why it is necessary for us to have an outside party come to us, change our hearts, give us new hearts so that we can be right with our Heavenly Father. Now, we go to Romans chapter 5. Turn over a page there. We're going to look this morning at the three fruits of justification that are listed here in these first two verses for us. Now, we think that the fruits of justification, that makes a really good Presbyterian sermon title. Um, But really, when it comes down to it, it says, when you're saved, you can expect these things to happen in your life. When you come to Christ and he changes your life, when you hear the message of the gospel, and and maybe you've heard the message of the gospel 50 or 60 times, uh, and and you're like, yeah, yeah, well, I, I believe that. But your life has not changed. But when you hear it and the Lord comes and changes your heart... ...these are some of the things that you can expect to happen in your life. Why can we expect them? Because God makes them happen in our lives. God brings them to us. So Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, now therefore you look at the first word... ...therefore you're dealing with what has come before. What has come before. From verse chapter 1 verse 18 all the way through chapter 4. That's what he is referring to in that therefore. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. This is God's inspired word for us today. So through the first four chapters, Paul has been showing us that God's promises are obtained by faith. Remember from Ephesians, you're saved by grace, through faith, not of your own. It is a gift. That faith is given to us. And once the Lord gives it to us, our lives are forever changed. So here in chapter 5, he draws out the consequences of that for the believer. For one whose life has been changed through faith, by grace, what are the consequences of that? Now, this is Paul, and he wants to tell you that you can have these things in full, in full, to their fullest measure possible in this world if you've trusted in Christ. Now, this is Paul who has been, what, rejected by the people he grew up in, rejected by the people he was trained with, uh, persecuted himself, even though he started out as the great persecutor of the church when he came to christ now they're persecuting him he's been shipwrecked he's been beaten he's been stoned but yet he is so full of joy he can hardly contain himself now how is this possible that all these things could go on in paul's life and yet he can be joyous and so full it just oozes out of him if we saw him you could see it coming out of his pores okay so full of joy well paul has a very simple answer for that it's justification Justification, Because of what God has done in his life through the work of Christ and because of the consequences of that justification, he says, I'm, I'm full of joy. And these are the implications for every believer. You can be too. You can be too. So these three fruits. Number one, the first fruit of justification is peace. First fruit of justification is peace. And we need to be clear what Paul means when he says peace. Um, because there are a lot of pieces out there that people are looking for and wanting to find and sometimes they think they have peace when they really do not understand the peace that they're really looking for. A lot of people think of tranquility when they think of peace. Um, They may be facing some real tough circumstances emotionally, psychologically, whatever they may be and they're looking for a little relief in that and when they find peace they think they have found the real deal. Paul is not talking about tranquility. Peace, when Paul uses that word, the peace with God means that the cessation of hostilities between God and man has come to an end. And you think, well, when, when was I ever at, at odds with God? I mean, I've always been a good guy or a good girl, and, and when was I at odds with God? If you're not in Christ, you're out of Christ. There really no in-between. And when you were out of Christ, before... He opens your eyes and changes your heart, and the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you. You are an enemy of his. You are an enemy of his. But when you come and profess Christ as your Lord and Savior, then peace with God enters into your life, and you are now his child. You're no longer his enemy. You're his child. How is it that we can go from an enemy to a child with all the benefits that come with a child in an instant? How could we do that? And the answer is, well, we couldn't. He can. He can change us in an instant. In an instant. It is peace with God. Not, not tranquility of mind, not a calmness of our heart. It is peace with God. And Paul could never tell these Christians about peace unless he believed that God had actually established it that he had established peace through justification. And Paul says we should know peace as believers since peace has already been made available to us. It has already been given to us. Therefore, we should understand this peace. It is established so we have every right to appropriate it and make it our own in our lives. Now, John Gerson wrote this wonderful little book on assurance. It's called The ABCs of Assurance. And somebody has it because it's not on my shelf anymore, so... If you haven't, it, read it, okay? Read it. And he writes, The exhortation to have peace presupposes that peace has already been established. That is, a man could never be urged by Paul to experience a peace which the apostle did not believe was already effective between that man and God. How can Paul say have peace if it's not already been made? It's assumed it has been made by God already, and it is our job as believers to have it. We remember that in Romans chapter 1, 18. This is Gerstner still. Paul had already said that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, if the wrath of God was still burning against mankind, the apostle Paul would certainly never urge men to have peace. But the wrath of God is laid upon Christ. It's not laid upon us. It has been laid upon Christ. And for those who are in Christ, that is the way that we have peace. It is only after the grace of God in Christ and justification by faith is introduced that Paul urges his readers to make peace, to have peace with God. So in those four chapters, from 118 to the end of 4, he has introduced justification. And he says, because of this, we can know peace with our Heavenly Father. Gerstner goes on to say, coming now to the peace of God itself, we notice that the first great fruit or mark of justification here mentioned is Peace. This is an indication that there is no longer any estrangement between the holy God and the former sinner who is under his wrath and judgment. Now remember, like I said, we were enemies of God. And the Lord comes and changes our life. He justifies us. He justifies us. He declares us righteous. And now we belong to him. We are his children. And he he guarantees us an inheritance, guarantees us all this strength and all these blessings that come to us because we have been justified by Christ. If a person has peace and is in a position to experience and feel and rejoice in this peace, then that's a true indication that their life has really been changed by the work of Christ. Union with Christ. Remember, we spent 10, 12, 15 weeks on union with Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Union with Christ is not just a warm fuzzy It's not something that I just feel, you know, I just feel so close to God today, man, I just can't stand it. Does that mean I'm actually saved? Well, I don't know. You can't guarantee that a warm fuzzy in your life means it. means that you have experienced salvation. Are you growing? Do you hunger for the things of Christ? Are you living out his word? Is your life growing in holiness? Because, as Gerstler says, I'll, I'll read a little bit more, there can be a spurious... Peace. That's one of his favorite words. Spurious and pernicious. And he he got to say, pernicious, that's a pernicious teaching. So he says a spurious peace. This immediately raises a question. Is it possible that a person could think that he was justified and think that he had peace when in fact he did not? In other words, while a truly justified person will have this fruit of justification, peace... Is it still not possible for people only to think they have justification, only to feel like they have peace? Is experienced peace a true indication of a person's converted state? He said, putting it in another way, can we know that we know Christ? Can we know that we know Christ? And his answer would be, yes, it is our obligation to know that. And again, the ABCs of assurance. That little book says you better have assurance. You better know, and here are some ways that you can tell. Obviously, if it's possible to have a spurious feeling of peace, the feeling can be no sure indication that the person has justification. A warm fuzzy on one day 20 years ago at a, at a church service does not mean, does not guarantee that you're a Christian. Okay. Does your life reflect the things of Christ? Are you pursuing holiness? Are you speaking the things of grace and mercy in all areas of your life? So the peace being talked about in Romans 5 is a real and it is a, an objective piece. It is not subjective. It's not a feeling. It is real because it comes from God. Paul is talking about a change in a person's relationship. Peace with God means an objective change in how God relates to us. God relates to believers differently than he relates to non-believers. Believers Believers are his. They are his people. There are these great expectations and means by which you can achieve them that the Lord gives to believers. They belong to him. They can never be taken from his hand. No one can take us from the hand of God. Non-believers, God relates to them differently. So there are two words that describe the relationship between God and a non-believer, an unrepentant sinner. Guilt and condemnation. And, and, you know, we we hate to use those terms that, well, you're guilty and you're condemned if you don't believe in Christ. But that's the truth. That's just the way that it is. And and many of us remember those days before we were believers. We remember those days being outside the things of Christ and looking in and going, stupid Christians, what do they know about life? They know everything about life. They know everything that's important because the two words that describe those who are in Christ, peace and justification. Guilt and condemnation, peace and justification. There's a peace that what? Passes all understanding that the world does not understand, nor can they, because it comes only through Christ. If you don't understand that you're alienated from God, then it doesn't sound like such good news, what we're talking about today. That you can be reconciled to God. That, that you can be given a new heart and a new life through Christ. If you think everything is wonderful in your life, and, and, and yeah, those, those Christians, man, they got to have a crutch. And that crutch is God. And, and if they don't have God, then they think, you know, how are they going to survive in the world? If you don't understand our own sin, if you don't understand our own alienation from God, we'll see no need for a Savior. We will see no need for the work of Christ. We will dismiss it and think we are the be all and end all to everything. Peace with God is absolute, absolute, because God gives it to us. Nobody can take it away from you. Turn over a couple pages to Romans chapter 8, verse 37. This is the great chapter of Romans 8, and really this section from, what, 28 to the end of the chapter is so powerful, so full of things, so full of assurance that those who are in Christ can never lose their salvation, can never be convinced. Let's go to chapter 8, verse 37. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, for I am convinced, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. And I just, I just love this. Paul does this so often. He goes through all this list, and then just in case he missed anything, he says, What? Nor any other created thing. What has not been created? The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everything else has been created. So he says, no created thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This peace that comes to us through Christ, through justification, we can never lose. Because it is given to us by God and we are his for all eternity. The alienation, the separation from God that was there before has been dealt with. We belong to him. We have peace through Jesus Christ. Secondly. He goes on to say in Romans 5, 2, the justification means access to the greatest grace that we can find, and that is communion with God. Communion with God. And he speaks in the present tense. We have that right now. We don't have to wait to die to get to heaven to have communion with God. We have it now. We have it imperfectly, certainly, in this world, and we will have it perfect then. But we have gained access into a personal fellowship with our Heavenly Father through the work of Jesus Christ. See, it's by faith in Christ, through his work, that this happens. We've been given access to the very presence of God. When we pray, where are we? We think, well, I'm sitting in a pew. No, we're at the throne of grace. We we take it right to the throne of grace, and the Lord hears those prayers. I don't ever want you to think that the Lord, well, I'm just going through the motions... You know, if you, if you download that and get those emails, and, and you just go through the motions, well, I'm going through the motions, the Lord really doesn't care. You, when you pray because of the work of Christ, it's taken right to the throne of grace. You get his full attention. We could all pray at the same time about different things and each of us have his full and undivided attention. And, 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 and Paul's not talking about a one-timer. Paul is not talking about, you know, you just get access to the word. Remember in the Old Testament, the, the, the chief priests went into the Holy of Holies one day a year. We get to go into the Holy of Holies every day. All day. All the time. Because of the work of Christ. This is not like you go to a political dinner and you pay, you know, $48,000 to have a meal in the same room as a candidate. And if you pay $58,000, you get to get your picture taken with the candidate. This is not that, okay? This is at the throne of grace all the time. Fellowshipping with our Heavenly Father. He is the king of the universe, the creator of all that we see. Why should he invite us into his presence? That's what he does. That's what he does. Now, perhaps the best characteristic of this experience of our communion with God, that it cannot be lost, Paul indicates that we stand in this. Now, that word is a good word, but it's not sufficient. We stand immovable in this. We stand immovable with this. This this is a fellowship of permanent duration. Permanent duration. John Gerstner illustrates it this way, and and it will show his uh, age and, and how he grew up. All other joys with which we ever have any acquaintance in this life are what we may call furlough pleasures. Anybody in the military understands a furlough. As a pastor during the last war, that would be World War II, I often visited families which had been torn apart by the demands of the military. Sometimes I visited these families when the beloved husband or son or brother was home on a furlough. And he says, what a joyous occasion it was to have them at home and have the family circle complete, if only for a few days. But I doubt if I ever visited on occasions like that without seeing a mother or a wife in tears. Why? Because she usually would be anticipating that in three days or in a week the loved one would be gone again. Even when she was enjoying the company of her husband or of her son, the joy was spoiled to a degree by the realization that it was soon coming to an end. Is this not true of all earthly pleasures? Are they not properly called furlough pleasures? They all have a terminal date. Sooner or later, they will all come to an end. The awareness of this fleetingness of of the most exquisite of our pleasures diminishes the pleasure itself. There you are, your favorite bowl of chocolate ice cream, and you know it's going to end. And the more you take, you, the faster it's going to end. And, and we just had, Abby was home on fall break, Grace came down, and you know, they're here for only a short time. You know that they're going to leave. You know that they're going to leave. So perhaps, in Gerstner again, perhaps in an ultimate sense. We are incapable of complete happiness unless we are relieved of the apprehension that the present phase of that happiness will be lost or diminished. So the only way we can have true and pure happiness is to know that this pleasure will never end. That is justification. That is our presence and communion with God. It will never end. Nothing in all of creation can ever take it away from us once we are his. Our fellowship with the Lord is the only kind of pleasure with which we are familiar in this world, which is pure. Because it is a grace in which we stand rooted, immovable, never to be taken from us. This is what our Lord had in mind when he said that he came that you may have life and have it abundantly. This is what the apostle was speaking of when he called Christians more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. The third fruit of justification. is the hope of the glory of God. The hope of the glory of God. Now here, Paul is talking about a a view of the future and telling us that Christians need to rejoice in anticipation of the fullness of God's revelation and the fullness of God's glory. And only those who have been changed, whose lives have been changed by the justification of the Lord, by the grace of our Heavenly Father, can we anticipate this with excitement and with glory Because if you're outside of Christ, you're not really looking forward to the end. Because what happens at the end is judgment for you. It's judgment. A terribleness. So when we see the word rejoice here, it's not quite, again, it's just not, doesn't fill the word. It means to rejoice triumphantly. Okay, it just doesn't mean to go, yeah, it means to go, yeah! That's what it means. Triumphantly, there's a confidence, there's anticipation about the coming end. These are certainties for us. This isn't, a, what, what might it might it happen? No, this is a certainty for us. God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son, that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Everlasting life. Towards the end of the Bible, it says what? Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. The Lord's return is our blessed hope, our blessed hope. Again, Gerstner says, however glorious the experience of peace may be, however unspeakable the felicity of the Holy Spirit may be, even these blessed experiences are nothing in comparison to what lies before. He says, we can have it good here. We can just be a, have a closeness with our Lord and, and just know an intimacy there, but it's only a shadow of what we will experience in the fullness of the glory of our Heavenly Father. Gershner says, the famous evangelist Moody, that's D.L. Moody, used to say, someday you will read in the obituaries that D.L. Moody is dead. Do not believe it. I have just begun to live. I have just begun to live. And then Jonathan Edwards writes in in an unpublished manuscript, The blessedness of heaven is so glorious that when the saints arrive there, they will look back upon their earthly time, however wonderful their life in Christ was then, as a veritable hell. Because they will know the blessedness and the fullness of the glory of God. Just as truly, on the other hand, will those who perish in hell look back on the life in this world however miserable it may have been, as a veritable heaven. We want to be those who understand the fullness of the glory of God. The glory of God is mentioned many, many times in the New Testament. It is an an ongoing manifestation in our lives. It comes to the fullness when we arrive in heaven through the finished work of Jesus Christ, and there is the full glory of God. The glory of God will be revealed and everyone who has trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will stand before the Lord and go, you know what? That life was worth living. I don't care how difficult that life was. I don't care what I had to face in that life. It was worth living because here is the glory of God. Here are the fullness of the promises that were given to me. And Apostle Paul is saying here in chapter 5, he says, you will be there and you're going to be evidence that your life was worth living for Christ. It is glorious to look forward to that future hope, the pure hope, the day of vindication when the Lord brings all the fullness together. But my friends, there is a big problem. There is a big problem. Not everybody's going there because there are many out there that don't know the things of Christ. There are many out there who, are, who need to hear the things of Christ. They need to see them in our lives because when they meet Jesus, it'll be too late. We are the Jesus that they're going to hear from. We are the Jesus that they are going to see. And if we do not live these things out, since we are the ones, we're the instruments, we're the ones who proclaim the things of Christ, you know, we're the ones who have it, who have this great gift that can never be taken. And the world so desperately needs to hear it and to see it. This is the fruit of justification. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have been given a gift that we do not deserve, that we cannot earn. But yet you and your graciousness have given it to us. You have made us right. We could never enter into your presence on our own. We can never be good enough. We never cross enough T's and dot enough I's in our life to be good enough. But you have done the work. You sent Christ, and he lived a sinless life. He gave up his life for us and shed his blood, and on the third day was raised. Now he sits at your right hand, waiting your command to return to collect all those who are still here. Lord, we look forward to the day of fullness. Until that day, Lord, make it clear to us how our lives might be lived of holiness, how our lives might declare the things of Christ as well as our mouths that we might live to your glory, that the justification that you have given to us might be manifest in peace and communion with you in the hope of future glory. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.